0: Cuvix. <laughs>
1: welcome to the omen comics podcast where we talk about our experiences influences and tips on writing comics as the creators of the Omenverse. and as geeks we often like to celebrate geek holidays as well as talk about our favorite comics television shows and movies too i'm your host michael nunley and with me as always is my friend and co-worker steve sellers if there is one thing that adult comic book readers hear a lot from non-comic book readers, it's that comic books, or picture books as they like to call them, are for kids. Today we're going to talk about this assumption. Where do people get this idea? When did the fir- this concept first take root? And is it even still true in the modern age of comics? So, comic books being for kids... Uh, Comic books originally started out as reprints of the various newspaper comic strips and funnies. Uh, These repackaged comics were cheap enough that children could afford them and that adults could buy them for their children as a cheap means of entertainment, which was an important thing during that time period. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of entertainment to be had during the Depression. I believe this is where the perception of comics being for kids started, however. This is not to say that comic books were never read by adults, though. They read the pulps and the reprints of their favorite newspaper strips, so they were familiar with the material. But as far as books being in comic book form, they were predominantly read by children. Eventually, as comic books grew in popularity, comic book publishers ran out of stories to reprint and needed to have original stories to publish. That's when we got flooded with all kinds of comics, detective comics, romance comics, war comics, western, sci-fi, horror. they were just every 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 category you could come up with, they were pumping out stories for it. But even as uh, publishers struggled to keep this content coming, the kids who read their reprints originally had now grown up into teenagers, and they were still reading comics. So the age of people had had not necessarily shifted to the older uh, people, but had expanded. So now it was kids and teenagers that were reading the comics. Well, on April 18th, 1938, this all changed. When National Periodical Publications, the company that would be DC Comics, published Action Comics. And this comic featured the first appearance of Superman. Uh, Superman was the very first uh, superhero ever. And, uh, wow, Uh, when he first appeared there in 1938, uh, everybody went superhero crazy. Uh, especially Superman, crazy. Uh, but there were all kinds of other heroes. There was the Spectre and Rocket Man, uh, Bullet Man, you know, Batman and Namer the Submariner, the Wonder Woman, the Human Torch, Captain Marvel, and so many others. But Superman, the very first superhero, beats out any fandom that has come before or since, including the Beatles, I might add. The whole country went Superman crazy, and soon other countries began joining the craze. During this time, there was Superman. There was a Superman radio program. There was Superman in all kinds of advertising. There was a Superman parade float. It wasn't long before a rather expensive animated film was made, and serials could be seen in the theaters about Superman. But comics, uh, comics are no longer just for kids. All of this exposure uh, with, from Superman and the flood of all the other superhero comics uh, brought many adults into the industry, both professionally uh, and as fans. But still, kids and teenagers were the industry's bread and butter. However... During World War II, many of those young kids that read all the reprints and stuff from before uh, were now adults, men and women, uh, many of them even involved in the war, and they were still reading comics. In fact, check this out. The number one thing most shipped from America to the G.I.s during World War II was comic books. I I, I really like that. Uh, all, of, all of that to say, well, comics started out for kids. Those kids grew up and as adults continued to read comics. That led to the next generation of comic book creators being those who grew up with comics and wanted to make comics as a career. Uh, now, these these creators had no uh, restrictions uh, in, in their creative process. They were just essentially told to come up with material. Uh, And while I will will protest Frederick Wortham's claim that comic books are responsible for every bad thing a child could do till the day I die, (laughs) uh, by the 50s, I will agree that many comics were no longer appropriate for children. Uh, Many of them, especially the horror comics from people like EC, uh, were scary and gruesome. They were violent and sexual, which was fine for the adult readers, but... Kids were reading these comics, and that was a big part of what Wortham's problem was. Uh, this new generation, uh, they they had no they had no boundaries that they had to follow, and I think that this is where in the fifties this is where uh, the the scale started to lean towards a more sophisticated and intelligent comic. Uh in other words, the the writers who originally wrote solely for children were now considering that older people were reading them as well. Uh, however, uh, the the perception of the adults, uh, from most of the adults who were not reading comics, uh, that they were still for just for children, uh, was part of the fuel that led work read that that fed the fire of Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent Hearings. And those hearings led to the Comics Code. And uh, Steve, I believe you had something you wanted to
0: say about that. Oh, yeah. Um, The Comics Code Authority and the Comics Code in general uh, really was the big consequence that came out of uh, Frederick Wortham's hearings and the Moral Panic of the 50s. Um, So the idea was we need to keep everything for kids. Um, But Really, the industry was kind of in a position where, okay, we don't want to have our industry regulated, uh, so we better go and uh, agree to self-censor ourselves uh, so the government doesn't censor us first. Um, so that's really where a lot of this came from. And um, it, it this actually ended up being very destructive uh, to a number of companies, especially EC Comics, uh, which did do a lot of the horror comics and you know the Western comics and a lot of the more uh, violent comics that they were doing, at least by the standards of that time, um, so they were forced to go from that uh, to doing very sanitary for kids things. Um, the comics code would regulate all kinds of moral content, from you know sexual content to violence, to you know you can't have drugs featured in there, which would come into play later. Um, all, all these kinds of things. And so um, the comics that remained were sort of forced to adhere to this. And this is why, you know, you start seeing comics becoming much more conservative and, you know, heroes being what's more officer friendly like. Uh, Superman started off as a-, a champion of the oppressed, you know. He was a rabble rouser, you know. He would go and, you know, and beat up, you know, the-, the enemies of society and things like this. And eventually he became a champion of law and order uh, because... You know, that was what they needed him to be in order to survive. Uh, the same thing with Batman. So if you wonder, you know, how Batman went from being, you know, a guy who used guns and, um, you know, being the Dark Knight early on and then becoming, you know, um, the 60s Batman. Well, this is why they, they sanitized him up in, in, in the 50s uh, so that uh, he would be acceptable and code appropriate. So all of this stuff affected uh, comics um, majorly around that time. Um, and then uh, not too long after that, uh, Atlas Comics, which used to be timely, uh, made the next change and the next uh, evolution into Marvel Comics, um, you know, featuring, you know, which was started by um, Martin Goodman, I believe, and his nephew, Stanley Martin Lieber, also known as Stan Lee. And so, um, the company most responsible uh, for the shift back to mature content uh, would be Marvel Comics at the dawn of the Silver Age. And uh, Mike, I think you have uh, things you want to say about that. Yeah, you know,
1: uh, the guy you, you say you say Marvel Comics or Atlas Comics as it was at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but I, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many others. Uh, this this shift uh, in in what a comic book could be, this shift in what what content could be in there, uh, is almost entirely due to Stan Lee, and I think that that's because he didn't talk down to his readers. He didn't assume they were they were stupid children, despite what his editor said. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, what the back in 1961 uh, this was during the Silver Age uh, Stanley came out with uh, he decided he wanted to do his very own uh, uh, comic the way he wanted to do it and he was going to quit anyway uh so his wife talked him into just you know what if you're going to quit anyway just do this one comic the way you want to do it and that comic happened to birth the first family of comics fantastic four number one i believe that was in november of 1961. Mm -hmm. now Fantastic Four uh, assumed a certain intelligence and maturity from its readers, uh, as Marvel heroes were not like the ones that came before them. Uh, Stan Lee made it more about the man behind the mask than the mask itself and the acts of this heroic persona. Uh, his his heroes were flawed they they didn't like each other they they argued they they struggled with regular life and relationships this this just didn't happen in comics before this is what i mean about the more more mature content coming in all, again all this was from stan lee and those who those who helped him like artistically and sometimes with the story but Stan Lee basically built up the Marvel Age from that first comic with Fantastic Four. And because of that, uh, the most common reader uh, from comic- in comic books went from children and teenagers to college students. Were the ones that were writing into Marvel. College students were the ones uh, obsessed with Marvel comics, and it was because of titles like Silver Surfer, a very intellectual comic book, and Spider-Man, uh, Fantastic Four. These titles, these titles, uh, really built up what became uh, the modern universe. Now, uh, we didn't, we didn't have this. They didn't have this before. you got to understand that. We grew up having this thing, but Stan really changed it there. In fact, uh, Stan uh, decided to change things uh, quite a bit in 1970. Why don't you tell me about that, Steve? Uh,
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Stan was really a progressive-minded person, and you can really tell with a lot of the things that he did. Um, Towards the end of the Silver Age, around uh, 1970, um, basically, the Nixon administration um, and their Department of Health, Education, and Welfare wanted Stan to do an anti-drug uh, comic. Uh, the problem was is that you couldn't use drugs because it was forbidden by the Comics Code Authority. And so it ended up being a case where the government was kind of contradicting the code. And so... Um, what stan said was uh basically you know what um i'm not going to bother with the comics code we are not going to uh get code approval for this and he tried i mean you know he really did work to to try to get this approved Uh, And they would just say nope you can't have that there are drugs in this you know we're not going to put our stamp on this and so stan said okay we're just going to publish it anyway and you know uh let the uh consequences fall how they may and and ended up being um uh, Amazing Spider-Man uh, number 96 to 98, which um, published in May through July of 1971 uh, with the idea of, you know, drugs are bad. And, you know, which is a completely worthwhile message to have in a comic book and and, and, and you know, perfectly a good story to build a theme around um, as he was talking about, uh, the, you know, Harry Osborn uh, struggling with drugs. And it, it was a powerful story. And if so... I, if I may, I think that... Uh... That,
1: that is a, a perfect example of a flaw in the code itself. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that was one of Stan's issues with it, was that he, was, he wasn't saying, go try drugs, drugs are awesome. He was saying, look at what happens when you try drugs, this is bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like Requiem for a Dream or something like that. You know, where you show the negative consequences of it You know, with the idea of showing why this is bad because this is what happens to you if you take them. Uh, which is a completely different thing, uh, you know, as opposed to glorifying them, uh, which isn't what he was doing. And he was doing it at the behest of the government. The government was saying, you know, do do, you know, make this comic for us, and you know, and it was the code that was standing in the way of him doing what the government asked him to do. So it was just absolutely ridiculous.
1: It's also a little ironic that they didn't want government to control their comics, so they created the code. And
0: yeah, then the code exactly.
1: was preventing them from doing what the government was asking them to do.
0: Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's one of those perfect examples of red tape, you know, uh, getting snarled. And it's just amazing. Um, but I think we can kind of move from this and talk a little bit about the Bronze Age a little bit and and move on. Uh, because the, this was kind of like the real the start of where the code started to erode a little bit, or at least the adherence to the code eroding a little bit. Because um, during the Bronze Age, you would bring in a, they would bring in a lot of really uh, experimental writers, particularly at Marvel. Uh, also at DC, I mean DC had their own uh, anti drug uh, story with uh, Green uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, where Roy Harper. Uh, was uh, up on drugs, and it was another similar kind of story where they did that. Um, I don't remember if it was code approved or not. I have to imagine it wasn't, Um, but but, but that's the kind of stuff that they were doing. And then uh, later on, when the Bronze Age officially hit, you had writers like Steve Gerber and Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart, and they would really start uh, pushing uh, content like that. Uh, particularly like with cosmic stories. So it's like, yeah, you can't show drugs, the effects of drugs necessarily without running into the code, but you can do these weird, creepy cosmic stories, you know, where you have these insane uh, hallucinatory landscapes in space and nobody would have thought anything of it. So they were trying to do all kinds of things, uh, sneaking in past the code. And then you would have writers like uh, Chris Claremont in the late 70s and early 80s where... Uh, he would constantly like try to sneak little things in, like he, he, uh, basically implying a lesbian romance between Mystique and Destiny uh, in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and um, like he couldn't say the word "lover" at various points, so he would use like French words, you know, to slip it past the code, thinking nobody would understand it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> those are the kinds of things that they were doing. And it wasn't just Claremont, but he was just a, like a prominent example of this. Um, uh, but it, it was kind of the point where the, the code was becoming less and less relevant, though it had uh, some impact. I mean, they they were trying to protect the brands of these characters. Um, so, you know, you couldn't have Spider-Man going and using drugs or, you know, having affairs out of wedlock and, and things like that. Those were, those were no-nos back then. Um, but you can kind of see these things gradually changing. Um, where that really changed was in the mid-80s, um, particularly with the uh, British invasion, um, Alan Moore particularly, and and then you had Frank Miller who um, also really pushed the code. Um, Watchmen was, in 1986, was, of course, um, the big, you know, mature book that, you know, kind of showed that, hey, comics weren't just for kids. We could have these really adult stories featuring superheroes. And then you had Frank Miller, you know, doing his uh, very uh, political take uh, on the 80s and the night, Dark Knight Returns. Um, all of these things were, were huge. Um, but from there, um, DC really built on that and said, well, you know, these British writers are bringing something new to the table um, and they're challenging our views of superheroes. Let's get more of them. So, uh, this led to the establishment of uh, the Vertigo line in 88, uh, following uh, the Saga of the Swamp thing, um, which was really like the precursor to Vertigo. And then you kind of had books like Neil Gaiman's Run on the Sandman. Um, You had uh, John Constantine's Hellblazer, uh, which really got into some dark, twisted stuff, and then uh, to cap it all off, you had Garth Ennis <laughs> coming in and doing what Garth Ennis does best, which is to uh, upset the apple cart, get as <laughs> twisted and and like hilariously screwed up as possible. And then you had in the '90s, and then you had Preacher, you know, which was you know a, a completely shocking book, and there were people protesting this book all the time. Um, so yeah, by the by the '90s, I mean things were really changing. And even in mainstream comics in the 90s, it was getting more mature. Uh, you had Rob Liefeld coming in you know, with Cable and, and, all the, and all these other you know, horrific characters again. So it was almost like EC was coming back, except it, they were Marvel and DC characters. Um, so you had all of that old sensibility coming back and the experimentalism happening again. Um, and comics were gradually becoming more adult as these books worked and became successful. Um, And so by the end, um, the Vertigo effect actually affected Marvel Comics, because um, in, I believe it was around 2000 or 2001, where Joe Quesada became editor-in-chief of Marvel. Um, The publisher was Bill Jemis, and he was very uh, into experimental stuff as well. And basically, Casada early on in 2001, decided, what do we need the Comics Code Authority for? Uh, we want uh, to really promote these new ideas, and the code is just getting in the way of what we're doing. So we're just going to stop getting a code approval for everything. Um, and in fact, um, he had Vertigo, a Vertigo editor as like, one of his major line editors, uh, Stuart Moore. Um, you know, he was editing things like The Incredible Hulk. So um, all, and then on, and then on top of that, they decided, okay, let's do our own Vertigo, and then they called it Max Comics, um, which I mean, it didn't, unfortunately, it didn't last as long as I would have hoped. But there were some really good books that came out of Max. Uh, there was a Howard the Duck book by Steve Gerber that was quite good. Um, they had uh, Brian Azzarello uh, doing a Luke Cage book. Um, they had. Uh, Garth Ennis eventually coming in and doing a legendary run on The Punisher. Um, the a, greatest know, ever Max. written. Yes, absolutely greatest run on that character ever, and it is awesome, and you should read it. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that they were doing, and by the end, you know, n- nobody cared about the Comics Code Authority anymore. It, it, it was no longer fit for purpose. Uh, DC went and got rid of it in 2011. Archie got rid of it in 2009, and Right, and that's led to um, basically the adult audience-oriented um, comics that you see now. Um, you want to take a talk about the next stuff?
1: Yeah, I think uh, from from that point, uh, most comics uh, across the board, unless specifically branded for kids, uh, were at least uh, had a PG rating. Uh, there, I mean... Today, there we're back to that point in the 50s where there was no limit to what a person could read in comics. Uh, thank God there are no Frederick Werthams to ruin this for us. Um, people get their faces cut off. I mean, in, in Detective Comics, the Joker cuts off his face and hangs it on a wall for no other purpose than to disturb Batman. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, people get ripped in half uh the, one of that's one of the century's favorite tricks uh people are gang raped and killed in mass they're tortured and mutilated uh i mean people uh the villains are truly sadistic uh they're not just the 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 regular i want to conquer the world or rob a bank kind of villains we had before they i mean these these people are really twisted nowadays uh, but companies like Marvel, uh, I've noticed, still like to throw a little bit of humor in there. Like, I've never read a Marvel comic where I didn't laugh at least once. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the average parent uh, would still want to monitor what their children were reading. Uh, in short, comics are not solely for kids anymore. If anything, I think they are made more for adult readers. Um. This leads, I guess, into uh, you know what? Do you, what is it that? Uh, how, how do we apply this to Omen Comics, Steve?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about one last thing that I overlooked um, huh? as far as the how we how uh, comics got as dark as they were and how the villains got as dark as they were. I can't okay. I, I can't let go this go without talking about Identity Crisis in the mid two thousands uh, over at DC. Cool. Because that was when um, they really blow the doors off in getting really nasty with their villains, because they had um, and, and getting moral complexity with their heroes as well. Because you, you kind of got a, a, a situation where uh, Doctor Light was going in and actually uh, actually sexually assaulted. Um, the wife of the elongated man, and uh, this kind of led into a situation where uh, they talked about, you know, what are the ethics of mind control and, you know, using uh, magic to make people forget things, and 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 all these kinds of things. So um, they that I would say that was like the big the big story that really uh, gave uh, comics permission to have the hero the villains get really really dark and have the heroes get dark as well. Um, Right. That
1: was definitely a turning point where uh, even that we even had to question whether the heroes were heroes after mm, that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of leads into um, how we approach things. Um, I would say that as far as what we're doing, we we made it. We had it came out of a desire to make adult comics. But we don't want to make them adult only. We don't want to, you know, limit our readership and tell you, well, you can't read this. We have blood and guts all over the place. Um, you know, we want to make also make sure uh, that as far as our content, you know, that we use the content because it makes sense to, because the, our story needs to be that way. You know, we don't want to shock you just for the sake of shocking you. But, you know, sometimes we want to get your attention with things. Um, we're generally aimed towards uh, PG-13 to PG-17, you know, somewhere in that range most of the time. Um, now, keep in mind that, you know, although we definitely have books like Omen or Gall's Men that, you know, really likes to you know, blow the doors off and, you know, what we can do in terms of our content... You know, not everything is going to necessarily be that way. And we don't want you to feel like, well, you know, we can't have little Timmy reading this. Um, we hope that there are books that we have that where you can do that. Um, I think that um, Guardians of the Lamb, for example, uh, which I do is kind of aimed a bit more all ages. Um, you know, I want to be accessible with that particular book. Um, Dragon Girl and the Albino Warrior uh, does much the same. You know, it, it's more of kind of like the light uh, side of the Omen verse, if you will. Uh, so, you know, there are definitely options for you, you know, if, if you really don't want like the hardcore blood and guts and you want other things. Um, and then we have books that are in between. Um, I consider uh, White Druid and Michael Nero uh, to be kind of the middle ground. I mean, you're definitely the first issue kind of starts off, uh, a, you know, a bit more on the hardcore side. But I would say most of, you know, the, what I do with that is kind of in the middle Uh, Where, okay, you might have like a a ghost cowboy swearing a lot, but on the other hand, you know, you have uh, Lou who really doesn't do that at all. And, you know, we're not necessarily out to um, hit you with a lot of blood, but we're talking about, you know, people being murdered because, you know, it's a detective story. So, you know, the content is as we need it to be. Um, but hopefully, the the idea is is that there's an Omen verse book out there for all of you, and also uh, the same for Revelation comics. Um, you know, uh, Blitz is very all ages. Uh, we have other books that are going to be uh, more mature, more than likely. So uh, we're hoping that you know there's some there's an Omen comic or a Revelation comic uh, that you can pick out and and and, and enjoy and, and and keep with you. All right. All right, so
1: I think, I think we've made the decision officially uh, that comics are not for kids, as, as an assumption is made. They are not merely uh, picture books like you would see in a children's book or something like that. They, they are serious books. They are serious works of art with
0: serious content. Thank you for listening to the Omen Comics podcast. This has been Steve Sellers and Michael Nunnally here with Omen Comics. And uh, we encourage you to look into all our Omenverse titles, wherever they might be sold, including Comixology, Amazon, uh, Draw Me in Comics, and elsewhere. Uh, If you like our content, please like, subscribe, hit the magic bell for notifications. And until next time, we'll see you in the Omenverse. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP.
1: I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out.
0: For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.